In this episode of Over the Bonnet, I sit down with a music artist who lives by the motto, believe in yourself and never give up, even if it doesn't work out the way you planned. After several years working to hone his craft since moving to Nashville, Matt McClure says you can only achieve your dreams if you put yourself out there in the first place, and after eight years, may finally have the song to launch his career. Over the Bonnet with Mark Peepers. <laughs> well, well, at least the guests are good. You'll never know what happens with the conversation when it's over the bonnet. <laughs> You're kidding me, aren't you? Matt McClure, welcome to Over the Bonnet. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. Good You're a performer in Nashville, Tennessee. Tell us about the whole experience and what it's like in the capital of American country. Well, it's, um, you know, just a learning process, I would say. You know, uh, I moved here not knowing anybody, and as many people do, and not knowing anything about the music, you know, business. And so you just come here, and um, the things that you think you do know, you quickly realize you, you, ha- you had a lot of things wrong, you know. And so I moved here, and, and, and I would say that for me it was – you know, um, the beginning of a, of a, of a self discovery process, particularly, um, a process of discovering, you know, what I'm, what I need to do artist wise and style wise. And so I moved here, uh, I had written country songs, um, uh, for a few years before I moved here. And so the idea was to move here and, and to be a country artist and, I still write some country songs, but as far as uh, the artist style, um, I've, you know, definitely morphed or evolved into something completely different. And that's that just came because of, um, you know, experience, you know, the, the different experiences that I went through. Um, I had never really been in, uh, in, in a studio. I had never really worked with recording software and all the different options you have as far as sounds go and production styles and and a few years after i moved here i'm you know i kind of get you know like you said kind of got a setup going and and learned how to do some um some uh, producing and recording and learned how to do um you know different styles of music just kind of in a trial and error way, just kind of self-taught, you know, maybe watch a few YouTube videos to learn what the buttons are for in, uh, in the, in, in the music software. And so o- over the last several years, I've been doing that and I really fell in love with um, the sounds that I kind of just settled into through that process. And it ended up not being country. Um, it's more of a pop rock. Maybe you could even call it alternative style. And so I started, um, you, you know, um, started experimenting with beats and things like that, uh, beat tracks and a lot of synths and anything that I, any sound I could come up with by playing the, you know, the MIDI keyboard. Um, it was just a lot of fun to discover a lot of different sounds because I had never done that before until after I got to Nashville. And, and so um, that's where I'm at. I'm, I'm, uh, I feel like I've settled into... Um, the types of sounds that I want to use and I'm writing uh, songs to, to, to that type of sound now. And, 
it is the most fun I've I've had ever uh, as an artist and you know as a songwriter. You talk about the fact that you went to Nashville to record country and play country. Is country though evolving though to incorporate that more rocky sound these days? Yeah, for sure. It, um, you know, there's some really cool beats being used in country music. Very catchy stuff. And obviously there's an argument about what is and what isn't country. But, you know, I hear more and more people talking these days about the, um, the disappearance, so to speak, of genre altogether. And sometimes it is hard to kind of find out what genre you fit in as an artist. And I would say that a lot of country artists, you know, um, would definitely, you know, be categorized as something other than country, depending on what song it is that they're recording. Because on a country album, you can, um, you know, a lot of country artists these days, they may have a song that uses a steel guitar, um, but then their next song is very much based on uh, a beat track, you know, uh, more of an electronic sound. And so... Uh, obviously, uh, based on what we're hearing in, in country music these days, they're not too worried about genre. You know, there's a lot of mixture going on. You have artists like one artist that I really like is Kane Brown. He's a younger artist. He's been at, uh, he's been um, a recording artist here in Nashville for, I guess, several years now. He got his start, you know, on Facebook, just singing country songs, kind of acapella or maybe with a guitar on Facebook videos. And, and um, but as a recording artist, he's, he has done some songs that, you know, you could definitely label as, as, as country, but then, you know, he's doing collaborations with pop artists. You know, he, he did, um, he's done a couple of songs with, you know, um, Marshmallow, which is like a DJ. And so, and those are very cool songs. And then um, you've got Florida Georgia Line. Um, they've got some stuff that um, you can definitely call country. And, and their lyrics are usually always country. Um, but but the sounds that they use, um, you know, they've done collaborations as well with, of course, Nelly. Uh, they did um, a version of Cruise with him. And now they've recently done another song, uh, a kind of a crossover with Nelly. So I enjoy all of that. I grew up listening to, to country music uh, and, and other types of music. Um, not so much in my younger years, but once I became a teenager, started kind of listening to different things. And so 90s country was something that I was very influenced by and and still am I, I i still love 90s country and i do like a lot of uh, the country that's being recorded today and so in all reality i mean i could i could um definitely use the sounds that i've been experimenting with and do country music with it but lyrically it's kind of where i uh wouldn't be categorized as country because i'm not writing lyrics about the country life. You know, I'm not writing lyrics about, um, you know, trucks or drinking beer <laughs> or, or, or fishing or any of those things. I, I grew up doing those things. I grew up in the country and, um, I like a good cold beer and, 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 and I like fishing and I like country life. That's the way I grew up. But, um, just the kind of things that I enjoy writing about, um, probably, you know, um, wouldn't fit the uh, country genre. What do you like writing about these days? So, like I said, I was influenced by several types of music, several artists. 
Um, and so as opposed to writing about a, a particular lifestyle, like living in the country, um, I, I guess you could describe my music as more um, relational and more um, maybe psychological. And so I just recently wrote a song um, called The Pain in Me. And it's about how sometimes one person who's hurting can gravitate toward another person who's hurting. I recently uh, wrote a song called This is a Man's World. And it's about um, kind of social uh, issues. It, it's about um, how in so many aspects of life, uh, there have been times when women have been suppressed. Uh, and we still see that today. So I wrote about that issue. And then uh, the song that I shared with you through email is um, called Nosebleed. And it's about um, getting knocked down over and over again, whatever the case may be. Uh, anybody could apply the song to their life. Whatever you're trying to do, you face defeat, you face mountains that you have to climb and um, you try and it doesn't work out. So you try again. Uh, and so the song is kind of paints a picture of somebody in a boxing match, maybe, or a fight, a fist fight. And, you know, they've got a nosebleed, they got a black eye, they're, they're getting knocked, they're getting knocked out, getting knocked down, but they keep getting back up and they're determined to, uh, you know, just keep pushing through. And so, and so I just, the things I write, um, you know, don't pertain to any sort of lifestyle, whether it's a country lifestyle or a city lifestyle, it just pertains to the human spirit. Uh, more or less, whether it comes to matters of the heart, matters of the mind, um, psychological things, trying to deal with relationships, trying to deal with emotions. Uh, those are the things that I enjoy writing about. And, um, you know, because I, I've done a lot of reading um, on, on things like that. You know, I've, I've read a lot of books. Um, one of my favorite authors is Eckhart Tolle. Um, you know, and he, he talks about some very, very deep things, you know, Eckhart does um, about who we are as people, what's really going on on the inside. And so as much as I've been influenced by many styles of music, I've probably been equally influenced by the reading that I've done. And so I think when I combine the music that I love and all the influences that I, that I have with the type of things I like to think about, the type of things I like to read about, the type of things that I like to talk about, that's kind of what I'm doing when I write music. I'm talking about what I like to talk about. Is your childhood a big influence on what you're writing about? Exactly. Yeah. I would say that's the biggest influence. It's not the only influence. There are some things that I've learned later in life, some interests that I've gained later in life that also influence my writing. But uh, definitely my childhood, um, you know, growing up, I didn't, I didn't listen to very much music because I grew up in a very religious restrictive environment and we only listen to um, Christian music and even at that it was very traditional Christian music I mean even w when I was younger even like newer modern Christian music was not allowed wow. and so wow yeah it was a very restrictive environment so I you know I grew up in that I was born in 1981 and so I was I was young in the 80s but then I was a teenager in the 90s and for, and for all of the 80s and most of the 90s, I really didn't hear any of the music that was going on in the world. 
And so, of course, I turned 16, got my, got my driver's license, got a car, had a radio and a CD player. And that's when I started, you know, listening to other things. Um, and, and, and I'll say this, even, even my family that was very, very religious, over time, that all kind of started to, to fall away uh, a lot. And so even my family, my parents and, and uh, my brother, we all listen to all kinds of music now. Um, but, you know, you get influenced by the bubble that you're in. And sometimes you grow beyond that bubble. And I would say I completely walked, you know, out of that bubble because I felt like there was so much more for for me to know and for me to experience. And that's why I describe everything as kind of a learning process and, and a self-discovery process. So, so yeah, my childhood was a huge influence on what I want to write about. And um, there are, you know, I do have some songs that I've written that talk about, you know, the, the restrictive lifestyle that, you know, religion can have on your life and uh, that anybody that wants to control you can have in your life. And so sometimes, sometimes you find those type of people in religion, not always there's fantastic people, uh, religious people still in my life. And, and, you know, most of my family, even extended family are all, you know, quite religious, but wonderful, wonderful people. Um, but I've witnessed not, not only toward me, but I've witnessed, this in other people's lives uh, since I was a little kid, I've seen a lot of people be suppressed and controlled, manipulated. And, you know, they were just, I've seen so many people since I was a little kid, I've seen so many people, including myself, live under a weight, you know, have a weight put on them that, that shouldn't be there, you know. Is that just fear that... It's that control in sure. case you do develop other ways of thinking. Sure, I, th I think fear is definitely at the at the root of all of that. And you know, it's an amazing thing. Uh, fear can keep people trapped in certain beliefs. It can keep people trapped in, in certain lifestyles, and it can prevent. You know, fear can prevent so much good from happening in your life. And you know, that's what I discovered. Um, you know, as time went on, I discovered that life outside of that bubble was not bad, you know? <laughs> and, and so, and so I was able to grow and, 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 and blossom as, as a person, I learned more about the world than, um, than I ever had, you know, growing up and, and learned who I was and learned to enjoy, you know, great music. And so like when I was 16, um, and started kind of getting out on my own and, 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 you know, driving in my own car and listening to my own music. Uh, I experimented. And, and so, and so, yes, my childhood is the biggest influence in, in what I want, in what I want to write about and how I write the experiences I went through. Because even as a, you know, I, I mentioned a minute ago that I recently wrote a song about women being suppressed. You know, it's basically a song about misogyny and I've, I saw that as, as a little kid and I, and I saw it for years in the bubble that I grew up in. And so, yes, it was a huge influence. Um, but then I started to listen to different, I started, you know, like I said, I listened to nineties country a lot in the, on the radio in the car and I loved it. You know, I loved artists like Garth Brooks and Alan Jackson and Travis Tripp, um, Keith Urban. I, I loved all of those nineties artists still do. Um, 
uh, took my wife to a Garth Brooks concert um, in Nashville uh, two years ago. And just, you know, I still love, you know, country music. But I also, you know, bought some CDs and things when I was a teenager. Um, one of my favorite memories as, as, I, as I explored different types of music as a teenager was buying an Eagles CD, Hotel California album. I was just mesmerized. Mm -hmm. I was absolutely mesmerized by the Eagles. Um, Hotel California in particular, the, when that song comes on, even today I get chills because of those guitars, man. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's so hypnotic and, 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 and just, you know, it, it, it just draws out so much feeling in you as a listener. It did that to me definitely as a teenager and, and I fell in love. You know, I, I always loved music. I always loved singing since I was a little kid. I always loved storytelling, even since uh, the time I was a very small child. Um, and so my love for music and sounds, my love for singing and my love for storytelling. Um, thankfully, I was able to evolve into that person because I started off my adult life just being, you know, a guy who was going out there trying to figure out what job he was going to do. And, and I went through so many jobs, but that that love I've always had of sounds and music and singing and storytelling, it ultimately rose up to the surface and conquered all of the other options that that may have t taken up my time in my life. And so, and so, yes, my childhood not only influenced the things that I write about, uh, and 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 the things that I think about now, but it also because it was you know a uh, a very restrictive environment. Yes, that my childhood actually drove me into a very intentional and intense and passionate search for wonderful music when I got older. And so I started listening to the Eagles and they were wonderful. I, I mean, I absolutely loved the Eagles. Um, and, I, and then I started listening to, you know, even like um, my influencers are so what uh, I remember singing every song on the first John Denver CD that I bought, you know. Um, what was the CD? I, uh, I don't remember the name of it. I just remember the songs. You know, it had Country Boy on there. Uh, Thank God I'm a Country Boy. You know, it had um, You Fill Up My Senses. Any like song. Oh, yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, Leaving on a Jet Plane, all of those songs. I just fell in love with his voice. I fell in love with his songwriting. And so there I was, I was, I was a kid who had never heard really any music in the world, hardly at all, except maybe something here and there on TV or something. Uh, or maybe when I was with my cousins or friends, I would hear music at their house. But I really, because of my childhood, I really started just immersing myself as much as I could in music as a young man, uh, as a teenager. And so it was the Eagles and it was John Denver. And like I said, 90s country on the radio. And then I started listening to, you know, hip hop, things like that. I started listening to singers, um, R&B singers. I started listening to Aretha Franklin. I started listening to Tony Braxton. I started listening to, um, um, you know, such a variety. Like um, my wife and I, um, we started dating when we were teenagers and um, we listened to any kind of 90s music that there was, not just country. But our favorite song, and we still call it our song to this day, is uh, All My Life by Casey and JoJo. 
you know, all my life, I prayed for someone like you. And I thank God that I, that I finally found you. You know, we, we, every time that song, every time we hear it, even today, it just, it's just, you know, it's just awesome. We just, you know, we, we, we've always been connected to that song. And so all of the music that I listened to over there, and then, and then, um, Several years after that, um, I continued to listen to different things. One of my favorite bands ever is Evanescence. I bought um, I bought a black Mustang car, uh, Mustang GT. I loved that car, um, and I remember the first CD that I played in that car. It had a, it had a great stereo in the car, a Bose stereo. Man, I just I. I soaked in so much music driving that, <laughs> that black Mustang with that great stereo in it. I soaked up so much music in that car. And Evanescence, uh, I bought their first album and their second album. Um, and I loved both of those albums. And the sounds that Evanescence, that Amy Lee uses, you know, the classical piano, but then the synths and the heavy, almost heavy metal, really, hard rock, all of those noises mixed together. I mean, I absolutely just soaked all of that in and so here's a young guy who really even though i didn't have a foundation as a as a child of listening to all of the great music in the 80s and the in the great music that had just been released into the world in in the 1970s you know you talk about great music um the seventies, you know, I was, I was born right after that. And so all of that music was still flooding the airwaves, but I never heard it in the eighties. And, and of course I, I've caught up on quite a bit of that over the years. And I've listened to a lot of the stuff from the seventies. Um, but like I said, influences of mine go all the way back to the seventies, like the Eagles. And, um, but throughout time, uh, because I was just so hungry to explore every kind of music that I could because I didn't get to as a child. I've been influenced by the Eagles. I've been influenced by John Denver. I've been influenced by Evanescence. I've been influenced by Eminem. Uh, I was listening to, I was listening to Eminem in my car last night. Um, and so, um, you know, rap music, I've been influenced by rap music and, and there's some very rap like lyrics in sections in a few of the songs that I've written. And um, so I feel like um, because of all of that experience and because of how kind of how I approached music as a young man, um, it allowed me to be a sponge and to soak up so many different kinds of sounds, so many different types of messages, so many different types of lyrics. And to hear, and, and I really learned how to, you know, sing the best way I know how, because, you know, I, I listened to so many great voices. And, you know, I would try to sing like John Denver. And I would try to, you know, sing like Don Henley. And even listening to Adele, I've listened to Adele very heavily uh, since she started recording, uh, since her first album came out. And I would try to hit those high notes with Adele, you know. And so... Um, now I feel like I've settled in into exactly the sound that I need to need, need to produce. And I've learned how to be myself vocally. And so, um, you know, I look back and, and I look back at my childhood, which is the biggest influence on who I am today. Um, 
And, you know, I say that it was restrictive, but um, ultimately that led to some pretty good things, I think. Do you have resentment because it was so restrictive? I, I have had, yes, absolutely. And um, I've been able to kind of finally breathe, you know, in, in, in my later years in life, in my most recent years in life. I have a great relationship with, you know, my family. Um, there's no there's no division or anything like that. Obviously, my beliefs and my approach to life doesn't line up, you know, perfectly with, you know, the rest of my family. And, you know, you could say that in, uh, I'm probably viewed um, as, you know, maybe what they call the black sheep sometimes, but uh, not really in a bad way, just in a different way. You know, I'm, I'm not a person who, who uh, causes trouble at all. Uh, I'm not a black sheep in that fashion. Uh, just, ju- I'm just different than, than how I was raised. And um, the beautiful thing is that, that I have been able to um, maintain a, a great relationship with my family, with my parents, and, um, you know, let go of, of a lot of that resentment over the years. And uh, I am at peace with, with how things have played out. Uh, I'm at peace with who I am and I'm at peace with who my family is, you know? Um, and, um, I think everybody has to walk their own path. And, and, and when I, when I finally understood that, that, you know what, I have my path to walk and everybody has their path to walk. Then you don't feel the need to, to, to change anyone so much. And you don't feel the need to argue with anyone. Um, uh, that's another thing that Eckhart Tolle, my favorite author, um, addresses quite clearly, um, you know, as far as relationships go. Um, and so I've learned a lot through him and, um, uh, also a book called the four agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz, the four agreements is a very popular book. Um, it's, 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 you know, again, one of those life changing reads that, that people get a hold of and, and, and it changes their life. What was the big it thing was- that it taught you? So the four agreements, uh, probably the biggest one is don't take anything personally. And, <laughs> and, That's tough. Yeah. And when you realize that you don't have to take anything personally because whatever's coming from other people is based in them. It's not based in you. It might be based in their perspective of you, but that perspective is still in them. And it really just allows you to have the space you need to not react to everybody and to everything. And it gives you the space you need to not even have to defend yourself. And so um, that was huge for me, you know, learning how to not take everything personally. Um man, it just, it really creates space in, in, in your head, in your life. Um, and so that lesson of not taking things personally allowed me to be, a, you know, a lot less reactive to other people. And then Eckhart Tolle, he, man, he, he came along too and talked about that so much. He talked about how the ego is so reactive, you know, and, and, and we react, we, we react, um, because we're just kind of, uh, identifying too much with emotion, you know, because we are not our emotions, as Eckhart says, you know, our emotions are something that we observe. We are not our mind. 
our thoughts are something that we observe. We are the being that is observing the mind. We are the being that is observing the emotion. And so uh, the reading that I've done has really helped me simplify my identity and not be identified with beliefs, not be identified with emotions, not be identified with history, not be identified with life experience, because I'm not even, I am not my experience. I am the observer of those experiences. And so bad things can happen around you, but those bad things are not you. And so um, all of these things, you know, you, you, you could call these things, you know, deep subjects. Um, and that's really, um, I think because of the way my childhood was and because of the things I've learned since my childhood, that's really what has made me love writing about the things I write about, whether it be women being suppressed or toxic relationships or fighting through struggle to get to somewhere greater. Well, it sounds like you were suppressed. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, and I wasn't alone. I think everybody that was in my bubble was, was suppressed. And are, are you conscious of that at the moment? Of course not. Um, but as you become conscious of it, you have a decision to make, you know, do you, do you just kind of stay where you are because of the pressure you feel to stay there? Or are you willing to look at the people you love and tell them how you feel and even live and act in a different way than you're expected to. What was their reaction when you did express the fact that you weren't happy with the way things were going? So it was a very gradual process. You know, it was, it was baby steps. Hmm. Uh, you could say when it comes to how I evolved past the bubble that I grew up in, um, I would say that, you know, I stuck my hand outside of the bubble for a little while and then my arm got out and then I stuck a leg out. And then eventually I just, you know, I think the more distance I created between myself and the beliefs that were ingrained into my, into my mind, the more I was able to see a big picture, so to speak. So it's almost like if you're in something, but you start rising above it, you can see it more clearly the higher you get. And so that took me time. But as I, kind of rose above uh, the beliefs and, 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 and did things and read things and, and allowed myself to just grow, allowed myself to question, allowed myself to grow. Um, I was able to look down and kind of see things from a distance. And, and, you know, when you're outside of something, you can see it for what it is a whole lot clearer than when you're in something. And it doesn't mean that the thing you were in was bad. It could be that parts of it were bad and parts of it were wonderful. And that is the case with me. There was a, there was a lot more wonderful parts to my childhood than there were what we would call suppressive parts. But the suppressive parts, as, as with anybody, I think, they have a very strong impact on your life. You know, even if a suppressive thing happens for just a brief period of time, it can have a a, a very deep impact on you. And so, yeah, I was uh, a kid who experienced that suppression. The messages that I was hearing from preachers, you know, in religion, um, and obviously not all preachers are are the same. Not all preachers are cut from the same cloth. There are some preachers who uh, can definitely, you know, I think show people the right signpost that can help them navigate down the road. 
but then there are some, you know, preachers um, that can take people off the road completely. And, and, and I experienced that. And I think that the messages I was hearing as a kid from the preachers that I was uh, under, um, they were so far away from those messages were so far away from um, reality. You know, it, it, it was really based on power and control. And so you hear these messages that kind of keep you guilty. You, you hear these messages that keep you obligated to the religion. And so, you know, that when I was a young kid, you know, I, I pretty much just felt like that's how life was. And this is, this is who God was. And this is who we are as spiritual beings. This is what we have to do. We have to do this, 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 and this, and we have to do it in this way. And anybody that says anything different is wrong, you know? And so, um, so that suppression was there. And, um, I saw that I still see that suppression in the lives of other people, you know, um, and not just in the type of church, the type of religion that I grew up in, but I see it in other forms of religion as well. You know, I've studied other forms of religion. I've studied other types of, you know, I grew up in a very strict form of the Baptist church. And, but I've also, you know, over time looked at strict forms of other Christian denominations. And the same thing can happen in other forms of Christianity, obviously, um, I even wrote a song um, called, I haven't recorded this song yet. I probably will. Uh, but I have a song that I wrote called Say No to God. And <laughs> it's it, it's not about really saying no to God, but that's kind of a prov provocative title for the song that maybe would grab your attention. But I wrote the song right after I watched a movie and the movie was spotlight um, with Michael Keaton, uh, Mark Ruffalo. Um, they did a movie called spotlight and Amy, Amy McAdams was also in it. This movie called spotlight was based on a true story about the years and years, decades of, abuse that happened at the hands of priests. And, you know, the people that were abused and suppressed at the hands of God's, you know, quote unquote, God's men, what a story that was. And, and to see that abuse um, go on for so long, and then to realize that it continued going on and that a lot of it was swept under the rug and that a lot of the abuse was covered up or they attempted to cover it up. And, and, and a lot of the abusers ended up just being able to walk away. Uh, not all of them, but some of them were. Uh, that, you know, I was never abused in that way as a child. I, you know, I know people who were. But then to see that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of of kids that have been abused at the hands of holy men over the years and to realize that it's something that has happened um so much um 
you know, I, I looked back at my childhood and I, and I realized that I was around that type of abuse. Um, and so definitely felt inspired to write about that. And then, you know, since that movie, I've read stories and articles, news reports about that happening in, you know, different types of churches. And it, it, it's, it's really sad because people put their trust in these holy men and, you know, too often, which one time is too much, but so many times you hear about these holy men have been for years abusing people in terrible ways. Um, and so you read about it in different denominations of Christianity. You, you read about it in different church leaders. Um, and even in, even this year, there's been a couple of big influential Christian leaders that were, um, it was discovered that they had been abusing, you know, people that trusted them. And so it's an ongoing thing. I think it's something that needs to be talked about. And I, I really was influenced and, and, um, you know, just really inspired by the movie Spotlight. And so I've written a song called Say No to God. And it's not about saying no to God directly. It's about saying no to a man or to a person who is supposed to represent God. And I think that's a very important message. Do you think that people are that way inclined or attracted to become religious leaders or the fact that once they're in there, the power corrupts and they need to find another way to exercise that power? I suppose both of those scenarios um, happen. Um, I do think because of the way religion is so often set up in a position in, 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 in a power structure, it obviously could attract and draw abusers into, uh, into that because obviously abusers and manipulators are looking for, you know, leverage. They're looking for ways that they can get away with abuse. And yes, I absolutely think that many religious leaders, um, they target that position for uh, the very reason that they want to control, they want to dominate, they want to abuse. Um, but then there may be cases as well where um, someone, you know, got into a position because it seemed like a good thing to do, seemed like something they wanted to do. And then maybe um, once they got there, they realized the amount of power and control that they had. And from that point, um, evolved into an abusive person. I think both of those things, you know, no doubt have happened. I don't know which one happens more than the other. Um, looking back at some of the religious, religious holy men that, that I've known, um, man, I, um, I would say it's pretty clear looking back that some of those guys were definitely already very abusive type people. Um, one of the most influential preachers that my family followed um, years ago was a preacher um, in Indiana. And I heard so many sermons from this preacher. He was so revered and so respected by the Christian community, or at least our circle of, uh, of Christians that we were a part of, 
Um, he, but he was he was respected by people all over this country, all over America, for many many years. And uh, we even I remember when I was a kid going to a a a a, a church camp, and our whole family went. It was a family church camp, and we went way out in the country at this beautiful big, huge, beautiful uh, horse ranch. And they had cabins out there where the families could stay in these cabins. And they had a huge dining hall and they had a huge sanctuary built where the, where the, you know, the uh, sermons were preached and the music and the church services. And it was a beautiful location. And I was probably, probably about maybe eight, nine years old at the time. And I remember going there and the, 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 um, guest of honor was this preacher that everyone followed nationwide. He was the speaker uh, of the week-long event. He was there to, to preach his sermons all week, and everybody just, you know, bowed down to this guy um, with such reverence. Is that wrong? Well, I think it's well-intentioned um, to, to, to reverence someone that, that you have a lot of respect for. I mean, um, I think it's well-intentioned. It's just can be so many times misguided, you know, especially if the person that you that you have so much respect for is someone other than who you think they are. And that was the case in this situation. Um, but I remember meeting this preacher. He gave me a piece of candy. I remember being like a nine-year-old kid. He gave me this piece of candy. I thought it was the most wonderful, special thing for this well-known, famous preacher to who, who I'd heard about, you know, as long as I could remember, you know, my whole childhood up to that point for him, you know, to give me a piece of candy. Years later, I, I don't remember what year it was that that preacher, when I was older, that, that preacher ended up passing away and I kind of lost track of that whole um, circle of people. Uh, I, I lost track of what happened to that preacher. And, but I found out um, just a few years ago that he was part of a huge um, long history of sexual abuse. I've heard about it so much and I've seen it so much people be suppressed at the hands of abusive people. And so again, there, there's my childhood, um, you know, influencing me to, to write about things that I think matter. What was your reaction when you found out that he had been an abuser, this preacher? So when I found out about him, I was not surprised because I had already found out about so much that had happened um, in religious circles I had found out that abuse, particularly sexual abuse at the hands of priests and, and preachers and pastors was, was really a phenomenon. It was something that was happening all the time worldwide. Uh, it, and, and, and even a preacher in my hometown uh, where I grew up, the same thing happened, to, happened there. He, he ended up, it, it was found out that he had abused um, several women and girls in his church and tragically, that particular um, pastor from my hometown ended up taking his own life. And so it was just a long, sad story that that ended in, in the most tragic way. Um, and so I had heard and seen a lot of things like that already when I found out about this particular preacher. And so it just really wasn't surprising because I had already kind of looked back and realized that as a preacher, he was a pretty power hungry person. And then so to find out about sexual abuse at his hands uh, and, and that he had had victims for years, uh, for years and years, um, it really wasn't surprising at that point.
What about your beliefs these days? You say they've grown and evolved. What are your beliefs? What have they evolved to? So I think the most three powerful words that that I know and, and that maybe anybody knows is I don't know. <laughs> and so particularly when it comes to spiritual things, when it comes to understanding the universe, existence itself, when it comes to understanding who we are, understanding who God is, man, at the end of the day, I think we have to, or at least I do, and I'm at peace with this, there's a lot of I don't know. Now, having said that, I have... Um, I have ideas and I think clues based on everything I've experienced that tell me we are more than just biological creatures that are going to live and die. Um, I think that consciousness itself, and Eckhart Tolle talks so much about consciousness. Um, consciousness really is something that we haven't quite been able to explain and I really like, um, like I said, I, I, I don't have all the answers, but I really like the idea. And I think a lot of spiritual teachers um, have echoed this for a long time, that consciousness really can't be separated from God itself or himself or herself, whatever you're, uh, however you describe God. And so what is the cause of existence? You know, those are questions that are difficult to answer, but they're fascinating to ask. What is the cause of existence? And so I look at the universe. I look at my own, own existence. I look at my own experience. And man, I, I have strong suspicions that there is more to us than meets the eye. I have strong suspicions that there is a, um, a first cause, that there is a creator. I just don't know if I can separate myself from that creator. Um, it could be that um, we are the creator experiencing himself. You know, those are all ideas that are fascinating to me. However, if, if it is, a, um, if God is, you know, and even in Christianity, you know, when you talk about Jesus, I think truly, if you um, if you truly look at the, the teachings of Jesus, I think a lot of things that he said, just about everything he said, um, is is largely misunderstood by religion, especially in modern times. I think that the formality and the power structure that has been built in his name probably doesn't really reflect the teachings of Jesus at all. Uh, Jesus taught love and the things he taught about consciousness, I think are very, are very interesting. And I think that the world is really, has really lost the original intent of what Jesus said in many ways, but you know, the Bible, uh, Jesus says things that, that, that refer to this and also the new testament writers when they're talking about jesus 
they also refer to this as well. Like for, for instance, the apostle Paul said, all things were created by him and through him and for him and by him, all things exist without him. There is nothing made that was made. And so you start thinking about Jesus or God, uh, being the creator of all things, but even based on the Christian Bible, it seems to strongly imply that everything exists in God and as God. And I think that that, I think Jesus said things that, that reflected that, that idea, but you know, in the religious world, pretty much across the board, there is separation between creation and God. And depending on what religion you're part of, you have to figure out how to get across that separation back to God. And I think uh, the message of Jesus could actually be quite very different than that. I think the message of Jesus could be that God uh, and his plan for mankind has always been um, a restoration, a plan of restoration, and that God has never, he's never left because everything is in him. This is him. Everything we see is him. So, you know, at the end of the day, I think about those things. Uh, you know, I'm, I know the Bible quite well, not only because of my childhood, but but because of what I've learned you know, about spirituality and even about Christianity outside of that bubble. And, and I think about those things all the time, really on a daily basis. And um, I, I, I don't have all the answers, but based on the things that I've experienced, based on the things that I feel in my own emotions, um, I think that um, existence itself is speaking to us I think that our uh, that that the consciousness that feels everything is speaking to us, and I think that when we look on the inside, I think we're going to find a whole lot more answers than if we look away from the inside and try to find answers elsewhere. What do you think of the supernatural then? You know, there are some things that, you know, people obviously call miracles. Um, and, of course, in a lot of instances, those miracles can be explained in in very rudimentary ways, very biological ways. Um, I listened to a podcast the other day with um, Lewis Howes. And the, the lady he was interviewing... I, I, I just started kind of reading her stuff and, and following her recently. I think her name is Gabby Berenstein or something like that. Her name's Gabby, I think. She said something on that podcast that I thought was interesting. And I think that we, I think most people can relate to this when it comes to the supernatural. As you pursue your goals in life and as you pursue your dreams in life and as you try to figure out your path that you are to walk, you know, you really sometimes, if you just stop and, and you think about what's happening, you feel like you're being guided. And, and I definitely have felt that way in my own life, that I've been guided, 
Now, do you call it supernatural or is it really just the way the universe works? Does the universe naturally work in supernatural ways? Maybe you could say that because, for example, you know, if you listen to um, people like Dr. Joe Dispenza, Dr. Joe Dispenza, you can find him on YouTube. He's, he's on po different podcasts. He gets interviewed all over the world. Dr. Joe Dispenza talks about quantum physics a lot, and he talks about how the universe works. He talks about how the mind works. You know, he talks about things like, can the universe even exist without an observer? You know, there's questions in, there's questions in science that say, can anything even exist unless some, somebody's observing it? And he talks about the power of the mind and the brain waves that literally come off of us and out of our mind and how it influences the physical world around us. So that's some very supernatural talk, you could say. So, for instance, he talks about how that when you raise the vibration of your thought to a certain level and you focus in the present moment, you can manifest things. And man, I tell you, more people today are talking about manifesting things in your life through the mind and through the power of thought than, than ever before. If you get on TikTok, there's a, there's <laughs> no, there's no end to the amount of people who are talking about manifesting and talking about the power of the mind to literally shift reality all around you. And I believe those things are true. And it, it's very what you would call supernatural. And it could be that God that's just how God works internally. And if we're inside of this intelligence and his thought and his vibrational powers of his mind brought physical reality into existence, it could be that we're just the ripple effect that does the same thing to our world and to our own reality. And so those things are fascinating to me to think about those possibilities. And I feel like, you know, like I said a minute ago, I feel like I've been guided in those ways and I feel like that the universe has worked like that for me based on what I've been thinking, what I've been focusing on, what I've been consciously or unconsciously trying to manifest. So, for example, uh, and this has happened in, in many, many scenarios uh, as I walk my path. But even getting here to Nashville, OK. Talking about something that I felt was supernatural. But like I said, maybe it was the most natural thing that could have happened because of the way my mind shifted. Uh, but so, 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 so what I'm saying is, before I tell you this story, I feel like maybe we just are supernatural. Maybe everything is. I mean, when you really stop and think about it, that we even exist, that matter exists, that the planets are spinning, that we are living on a speck of dust that's floating in an infinite universe at thousands, millions of miles per hour among billions of other galaxies. It's all supernatural, really. Uh, it's unexplainable. It's fascinating. It's wonderful. It's marvelous. And I think that we don't give ourselves enough credit um, to be miracle workers and to be supernatural beings. Because, man, I think if you think about it long enough, and you, and you think about it deep enough, you realize it's all supernatural and it's all unexplainable and wonderful. Um, so before I moved to Nashville, obviously I had evolved and I had grown out of 
an old mindset. Well, then once I grew out of the old mindset, I was kind of free to start thinking about new possibilities. I started writing songs. And at that point, it was just I was just writing country songs. And then next thing you know, people started telling me, hey, those songs are good. I like your songs. Well, then the next thing you know, I start thinking, man, I, I need to record these songs for people to hear. Well, I, I went into a, a local studio back home. I grew up in Kentucky, um, just about three hours from here. Uh, I went into a local studio. I recorded some very basic songs, just me and a guitar. And people loved it, you know, back home. So then I talked to my wife and I said, what if we moved to Nashville? And I actually tried to become a singer songwriter, become an artist. She said, let's do it. So we didn't have a lot of money and we knew it would be a lot more expensive to live here in Nashville. Living costs are a lot more. And it was a move. You know, we would have to, you know, we had two kids at the time. Now we have three. We were going to have to move our family here. We have to find a place to live, which was going to be about three times more expensive than what we were paying for you know, back home. So we didn't know how we were going to do it, how we were going to afford it. Um, and so I decided, okay, I'm going to just start saving money. I don't know how long it'll take. Um, and I, I got the idea to, to print off um, a bunch of CDs of a few of the songs that I had recorded and to sell those CDs to try to raise money, sell $10 CDs. You know, I thought, man, if I can sell a thousand of these CDs, I'll have $10,000 then then I can move. So I decided to put on an outdoor concert in my parents on my parents' property where their house is. And I invited as many people, friends and family that, that could, you know, that I knew. And I think about maybe 40 people showed up and I put on just an acoustic concert had an outdoor setup with speakers and a microphone and everybody could hear me. It was outdoors, but it was just me and my guitar, me just singing my songs. And but here I was intensely focused on this new journey. I was obsessed with the idea. I was obsessed with the thought of becoming an artist. I mean, I thought about it day and night and I started taking action based on that. And I put on this little outdoor concert and I sold a few CDs. But right after that concert, a family member of mine came to me and said, hey, let's walk down the driveway. I want to talk to you. And this family member of mine said, so when are you going to move to Nashville? Because I really think you need to move to Nashville. And I said, well, I don't know. I don't know how long it's going to take me to get the money. And he said, okay. He said, well, I want to talk to you about it. And so he invited me and my wife and kids over to his home. And him and his wife um, treated us to dinner that night. We had some, some food, we talked. And basically um, these family members, um, and by the way, these, this, this particular man and woman in my family, they were not religious. And so <laughs> it was interesting to me that these two people who were not religious could see something in me that nobody else could see. And so we were at their house. It was on a Friday night in June of 2013. And they said, if you could move to Nashville right now, would you do it? I said, yes. 
and they wrote me a $10,000 check. Holy crap. And they wrote me a $10,000 check right there in their house. And they said, go to Nashville. Wow. Two weeks later, we moved into an apartment in Nashville. Me wow. and my wife and kids. We sold about half of our stuff that we couldn't fit into our small apartment. So we moved out of our house into a small apartment and we were living in Nashville two weeks later. So Mark, you know, you, you, you know, everybody, especially if you're really passionate about something, those things happen to people, not just me. You know, if you look at, I guess just about any artist that didn't know how they were going to make it, but they made it. If you talk to those artists and, and, and you hear artists tell stories like that all the time, man, I just chased my dream and things happened that were bigger than me. You know, you hear people talk about bigger hands were guiding, you know, were guiding me. And so that's definitely how I feel because, you know, Things like that have happened. And, and, and I look at the journey, even since I've been here in Nashville, at all of the things that have happened. And it just seems like the twist and the turns that have taken place have almost just been part of the map that was drawn up for me. And so I am, I guess I could say I am blissfully in a world of, I don't know how it's all happening. I'm blissfully in a world of unknowns. So I would say that maybe the supernatural and the spiritual and God can't be known, but it can be experienced. And I think if we're really tuned in and paying attention to our life, we are experiencing something that truly is beyond anything we can imagine. And I can't think of a more appropriate way to describe the supernatural or to describe God. Let's turn the clock back to those halcyon days as a 16-year-old in that first car and radio. What sort of car was it? So my first car was a, it was an awesome car. It was a 1970 Chevelle. Nice. And it was a hot rod. I mean, it was a muscle car. So my dad, he worked for the Goodyear Tire Company and he built tires for 30 years. And I have an older brother who is three years older than I am. And when my older brother turned 16, my dad was looking for a car uh, for him. And at work, he saw a picture hanging up on like a community board at work of this 1970 Chevelle for sale. And so he called the number and ended up buying the car for, for my brother. Um, and then my brother worked and paid my dad back for that car. And... Um, the car, when, when, when my dad bought it and, uh, for my brother, for my older brother, it was a 1970 Chevelle. My dad bought it in the mid-90s for my brother. And so the car was about you know 25 years old. 
and it only had 50,000 miles on it. Um, the car was in great shape. So, um, but they ended up giving it a new paint job and put some racing stripes on it and also put some big wheels, chrome wheels on it, you know, and, <laughs> and, and you know, just made it look really nice. My brother drove that car for three years. And then when I turned 16, he wanted to get, I think, a truck. I think he ended up buying a truck or something like that. Um, so he sold the car to me. And so that was also my first car. And um, my wife and I, and okay, my wife and I became boyfriend and girlfriend when I was 15, before I could even drive. I was 15 and she was 13. And so we had been hanging out together for, um, you know, about a year already when I got my driver's license. And then I bought the 1970 Chevelle. Um, that was in 1997 when I bought that from my brother. And so my, my girlfriend at the time, we dated – in that 1970 Chevelle. And of course, listen to all kinds of wonderful music, including, uh, you know, kind of picking out our favorite song, uh, Casey and Jojo listening to that CD in the Chevelle because we put a CD player in there. And so we dated in that car for about four years. And then after four years of dating and riding around in that 1970 Chevelle, uh, we got married and we were still just kids. I was 19 and she was 18 when we got married. You talk about a Chevelle and a Mustang with fair, a fair amount of fondness. Are you a car guy through and through? Yeah, and, and I get that from, you know, my dad. Um, my dad has, has always loved, especially classic cars, muscle cars. And my dad, even now, uh, he has a 1967 Chevy Impala. And uh, he's had it for many years, and he's kind of been restoring it here and there. And he still doesn't have it complete, but but uh, he has the 1967 Impala, and that happened also happened to be the first car that he had when he turned 16. And then wow. you know years, and then and then years later he, he decided to um, get another 67 Impala. So so he has that, and I had this I had the Chevelle for like I said four years, maybe five years by the time I sold it, but then um, I sold the car. Um, after I got married and got something a little bit more um, practical to drive, you know, to drive every day back and forth to work. Are you working in the music industry every day? How are you employed these days? So I have had so many different jobs um, throughout my adult life. And even since I moved to Nashville in 2013, I have pretty much just found one or two jobs that I could do that would allow me to live a very flexible life, pay my bills, but also work as hard as I possibly can on my, my music career. And so I've done, you know, I've worked in restaurants, I've served tables, which I absolutely loved doing. For many years, I, 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 I waited tables. I was a waiter, a server, uh, really enjoyed that job, always did. And I actually was doing that up until last year when coronavirus, um, you know, kind of shut things down and the restaurants shut down, my, my restaurant shut down and it has since reopened, but I ended up not going back to that. I, I, I'm doing something even more flexible now. Uh, I'm doing, I'm doing some delivery driving on the side that allows me to have total control of my schedule. So I've been able to, um, 
you know, focus even more. And, and I'm glad I can, I can have control of my schedule now more than ever because I have, like I said, reached that point where I understand exactly what kind of sound I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to produce for myself. And um, so um, I, I really feel like I'm at the starting line right now with the music that I'm going to continue releasing into the world. Um, I just released my first song, Nosebleed, and I have a lot of time to to write and to produce and to create new material. Um, and that's what I'm doing as much as I can. I, I get up at about 4.30 every morning and, you know, I, I get several hours of work in, uh, in uh, whether it's producing in my studio or writing lyrics. I get several or, or even sending emails out to people for some type of production collaboration or a lot of the emails I've been sending lately are to music supervisors because I'm trying to get my song Nosebleed into film and television um, because it really lends itself to that because of, because of just the way uh, the song uh, is produced and the message of the song. I think it can lend itself well. And I've talked to some professionals in Nashville that feel the same way. As a matter of fact, uh, a um, well-known uh, musician and producer um, uh, and music executive in Nashville, he, um, he heard my song Nosebleed and he wanted to collaborate with me on a film and television version of it. And so he took it and he did, he did a film and television arrangement of the song, which involves cinematic drums and cinematic strings. And it builds up very kind of in a more epic way than the original track does. And he specifically had like a movie trailer in mind when he built that production. So, so uh, like I said, I, I, I get up early and then um, I work for several hours on my craft and on my, uh, on the music side of things for several hours before most of the world wakes up. And, uh, and then throughout the day when, when I need to go out and work and you know, make some money, I have, um, you know, control of that schedule and I can kind of come and go as I please. And, and it's working out really well. And it's giving me the flexibility that I'm going to need to continue moving forward until, you know, obviously I want to get to the point where, you know, my income is based solely on, on music. But uh, until I get to that point, um, I think I'm in good shape, you know, to, um, to kind of climb that, that part of the uh, journey. Do you ever feel that there's like a glass ceiling that you've got to break through to get to the next level? Oh my goodness. Yes. Yes, absolutely. You know, you hear people talk about, you've got to hear the word no a thousand times before you hear your first yes. And you hear about people that, you know, that have, you know, done, you know, accomplished goals and they've reached certain levels of success. And I mean, the, the unanimous message across the board from the people that, I've listened to from the successful people uh, that I've listened to is you cannot give up. You have to be, you have to persevere. Perseverance is everything because so many people just pushed against that wall and pushed against that wall and it wouldn't move, but they just kept doing it. They kept, like you said, reaching that glass ceiling and reaching that glass ceiling and you know, you just have to keep going. And so um, there's, there's a really cool artist that speaks to this 
and uh, his name is Russ. He just goes by Russ. I don't know if you've heard of Russ, but Russ is a rap hip hop artist. Uh, I guess you'd call him a rap artist. And Russ talks about, you know, that journey of just going at it and being relentless and persevering. And I think Russ said he released like 180 songs before he really broke through that glass ceiling. But he even wrote a book. Um, he even wrote a book, and I'm trying to think of the name of that book. Uh, I can see the cover right now. Anyway, uh, it's a very short book. It only takes a couple of hours to read it, maybe even just an hour. Um, but he kind of documents his journey in that book, and he talks about, you know, being absolutely just determined when you get to that place where you feel like you've pushed all you can push, you just push more. And not only have I heard Russ talk about that um, in a very clear way, but so many artists that people like myself look up to, if you dig into their stories and you listen to interviews and, and things like that, man, you hear the same story over and over and over. It just, they tried for so long, things weren't happening. They heard no, you know, people told them that, you know, oh, that's not going to work. That's not going to work. That's not going to work. Uh, that song's not good. But then all of a sudden it works. You know, uh, you listen to successful business people like, you know, these days, um, Steve Harvey has become a huge um inspiration to a lot of people because he he's constantly giving the message of you you've got to jump off the cliff before you can spread your wings you've got to take a chance you can't give up you got to keep going he talked about how that he struggled for so many years but he knew it was coming he knew it was coming he knew it was coming and you know you listen to successful people like you know billionaires like mark cuban you know i I've heard Mark Cuban say this more than once. Um, you know, Mark Cuban's a very successful billionaire. He owns the Dallas Mavericks NBA basketball team. Mark Cuban, I've heard him say more than once, you only have to be right one time. And so I think you can, you, you push against that, that threshold that you just can't get over. You just push against it over and over and over year after year day after day, in my case, you know, song after song, lyric after lyric, you push through and you're going to be right one time and, and, and you're going to get across that threshold. And, you know, uh, Russ talks about that in that book. He said, he said, I, I felt like anything could happen at any moment. I always felt like something big was going to happen the next day. Do you feel that? I have felt that since day one. I have felt that since the moment I realized I was going to move to Nashville. And I guess when things happened the way they did, when something supernatural like the $10,000 check being given to me to move here, when something like that happens, um, even though I have been through plenty of struggle since 
since I moved to Nashville and plenty of failure and plenty of effort and, you know, hearing the word no and seeing things not work out, trying different types of songs and different types of writing and, you know, trying so many things to discover who I was as an artist, seeing so much not work out. I guess it would be, you know, easy for anybody to get discouraged and I suppose there were times when I wasn't quite as enthusiastic as <laughs> I would have liked to have been. But I do have to say that just knowing how the universe kind of just shifted for me to even move here and be here, I can't help but have faith that it could happen any day. You do know? you see the boulevard of broken dreams, though, that Nashville can bring? Oh yeah, absolutely. And so I actually think one of the most important things that any artist can do, whether they're in Nashville or any other place, trying to pursue their dream is, is to realize there's no secret formula to breaking through that glass ceiling. There's no secret formula to just jump over all of the broken dreams and to jump over all the disappointment. So the important thing is, is to know that you don't have to know how it's going to happen. You don't have to figure all of that out. But if you will work on you and you will take care of this, what's in your mind, what's going on inside of you, if you take care of that, um, you will be able to keep going. And obviously there are people who do give up. There are people who stop. They, there are people who just try and then they stop trying. Um, but, you know, like I said, when you listen to people who just kept persevering, um, I think it's easy to, I think it's easier to, to not give up when you know that it can happen. And if you'll just take care of everything in here uh, and keep yourself positive, and and keep yourself as healthy as possible uh, mentally and emotionally then everything that happens to you physically um, really really can't slow you down that much your wife must be a tremendous influence from the sounds of it and a great support to what you're doing and what you've done to get to where you are absolutely how's that absolutely helped? My relationship with my wife, um, it's really hard to, to describe it. I think the easiest way to describe it is just to say that we are best friends. We are best friends. And, you know, you always hear that marriage can be extremely difficult. And I know that that is the case. Um, and that is possible for anybody. But I don't buy into the idea that marriage is supposed to be difficult. Um, a lot of people kind of think, I think have kind of come to expect it to be difficult. And I don't know if you could call it luck or, or what, um, but we are really lucky. We are fortunate 
that we have the tremendous relationship that we have with one another because, you know, we're a team where we are both believers in, in the magic of it all. And we've just walked this road hand in hand. Um, and we've had one another's back. We've always believed that it, this was all part of the plan. This was all uh, meant to be. And so even though the journey has been very tedious and very challenging, it really has not done anything except fuel and energize our relationship. Um, and so we're fortunate, but we're also two people who even if we weren't on this particular journey, I think whatever path we may have walked down in another, in an alternate universe, I think that we would have been okay because fortunately we are both people that really don't, we don't put any burden on one another. We don't put, um, expectation on one another uh and so like i said earlier if you can look within as opposed to look without i think you can find the right way to live and you can find all the answers you're looking for and so i think we have both just been the kind of people that have done that and so we know that our happiness can only come from the inside. So I don't have expectations for her to make me happy. And she doesn't have expectations for me to make her happy. Now, we obviously love to do things that add to one another's happiness. We don't want to take away from that happiness. We don't want to treat one another un unkindly. Because although you may not be able to physically make someone happy, um, knowing that that happiness actually is the source of happiness is on the inside, not the outside. It's not in other people. Um, you can, you know, uh, I think hinder people's happiness. And so we've not done that. You know, we've, we're both happy people. We're at peace with self. We both look on the inside and we, um, we have peace, we have happiness. And so we are two happy people that are being happy together, um, not trying to use one another for happiness. And so uh, I think when you have that, when you have two best friends who are not a burden to one another, but only energize one another, um, then it makes a journey like this one even more exciting um, because you're on a journey together and whatever accomplishments you experience, whatever setbacks and comebacks you experience to, to experience, to experience that with someone else that you love deeply and that you're best friends with. Um, I can't think of anything more exciting that you could experience in life than to 
do what we're doing uh, and to face everything life throws at us together and uh, just to just to be there to support one another. And, and so it's not just about her supporting me on this journey uh, because this is her journey too. This is our children's journey and we're a very close family. You know, we're very, uh, we have a wonderful relationship with one another um, and we have a wonderful relationship with our children and our children have experienced all the ups and downs with us as well. And they've seen their mom and dad try to make the impossible happen. And they've seen them, fall short of that. And then they see their parents get up and try again. And so um, really for all of us, um, me and my wife and our three kids, it's just, it's just an incredible journey and it's fun and it's exhilarating. It can be exhausting, but no matter how tired we get, we just, we're still excited and we're still energized because we just know that we're living this out and we're going on this journey and we're discovering everything that we're supposed to discover and we're experiencing everything that we're supposed to experience or at least doing that to you know the best we can you mentioned tiktok before and you get some people that'll do one thing it goes viral say the justin biebers of the world sure. all of a sudden without a lot of work they will tend to just hit that mega stardom. Absolutely. How do you feel when you see that? Um, you know, there there may be there may be something very beautiful about it, and for for more than one reason. So, obviously, for most artists. that explosion doesn't happen, but it does happen for some people. So one of the producers um, that I have followed for several years now and, you know, kind of used him as a, as a mentor, I, I don't know him personally, but I've watched videos of him and I've listened to a lot of the things that he said is Timbaland. And so Timbaland said something the other day and a matter of fact it was it was in a tiktok video that i heard him say this he was talking about that very thing how that sometimes just something crazy happens somebody gets discovered off of one song off of one little video and the next thing you know a billion people have watched their video and they get a record deal and they're on their way and they're they're making millions of dollars and they're selling millions of records and they're releasing successful songs and it happens fast you know, sometimes that happens and there's really, I don't know of anything negative to say about that because when you put yourself out there, you don't know what's going to happen. And like I said, something could happen tomorrow for anybody, whether they've been working at, working at it for 10 years or they've been working at it for 10 days, something could happen tomorrow. And so the main thing, the beautiful thing is, is that, when you put yourself out there, anything is possible. Anything can happen. And so I think that can be a very beautiful thing. And also the other way in which it's beautiful, I think, is that when an artist is able to engage masses of people independently through a direct effort, when you're able to expose your song and to millions and millions of people 
and inspire those people to react to your song. And you did that through a direct avenue through, you know, through a medium like TikTok, where it's just you and the listener or the watcher. That artist has instantly gained an incredible amount of leverage when the music business comes to them and says, hey, we want to be a part of your career because we can help you take it to the next level. Obviously, when a record label gets involved, they're, they're there to, you know, not only to create great music, but they're there to make money. And so you take some of the artists that have exploded and gained millions and millions and millions of followers, you know, it really does allow them to come to the table with a record label and, and to have a, you know, a pretty good seat at that table many times. Um, you know, one example, obviously, that uh, people think of when, when you think of TikTok is, is Lil Nas X with Old Town Road. And Timberland was actually talking about Lil Nas X the other day on TikTok. You know, Old Town Road was just a phenomenon. It was just something that, you know, he 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 didn't even create the track. He bought the track for like $25 and then he wrote lyrics to it and released it. And the rest is history. But let me tell you something very interesting and very beautiful about it. I heard Lil Nas X say this <clears throat> in an interview on TikTok and they were asking him about this very thing. They were saying, what do you think about how your career just went up so just exploded just happened you just it happened so fast and Lil Nas X said this he said when I was creating my music I was sleeping on my sister's couch I didn't have a place of my own he didn't have a job he was sleeping on his sister's couch he bought a $25 track wrote lyrics over it for Old Town Road. But he said he told himself, it will not take me a long time to get to where I want to be. It will happen fast. He told himself that. So again, we talk about manifesting. We talk about the supernatural. We talk about how the universe or God has, has designed the universe. Um, Again, it's one of those situations where, you know, they say thoughts create things. And I think that happened with, with him. And so ultimately, when people experience really fast success, there was a thought that preceded that success. And that thought started with the artist and they put themselves out there. And so anything can happen. And whether it happens after a lot of struggle or it happens after a short period of struggle. Um, you know, it's unexplainable and it's beautiful. And um, I'm totally happy for anybody that can find fast success. Now, obviously, there are, you could say there's a lot of value in the long journey. There's a lot of lessons that can be learned and there's a lot of maturity that can happen. And there's a lot of very, very valuable tools and things that you can learn when you have to struggle for a long time. But that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be that way all the time. And so 
it's it's pretty crazy to watch how how things happen for people sometimes. For you, is it a case of spending twenty years to become an overnight success? So I think that I would I would try twenty years. I think I would try beyond twenty years if if that's what it took. Um, I moved here in, in two thousand thirteen, and so that's eight years. But I feel like I'm just getting started, and, and the reason I feel that way is because I've really just now discovered exactly what I do as an artist. And so because I, I have just, and, and, and even, a, um, even a, a person here in Nashville the other day was listening to my music and, and they messaged me on Facebook and I'd never met this person, um, but this person is a filmmaker actually in Nashville. And he messaged me and he said, I've been listening to your song Nosebleed every day. He said, the song is so inspiring. I love it. And I thank you for, thank you for making that song because I listen to it every day. And so, so we were talking back and forth and, and, and what he said of, about me resonated with me. Uh, and it's just so true. He actually told me, he said, do you know what you've done? And I said, what? He said, you have found your sound. I said, you're right. I have, I have found my sound. And so I'm more confident now, even after this eight years in Nashville, I'm more confident now that something's going to happen than I ever have been because I feel so good about the sound that I have found for myself and about the groove that I have carved out here for myself. Um, I, I feel now more than ever that I can start opening those doors and breaking through that barrier and, 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 and knocking those things down that I felt like I've been in my way for so long. Uh, I feel like that the music is what it is supposed to be now. And it's going to, create the path forward. So um, sometimes it takes 20 years. You know, I've talked to people that, you know, they were songwriters and they were singers in Nashville for 10, 15, 16 years, but they didn't give up. And they went on to become, you know, very successful artists. And so, um, you know, I think age doesn't really matter, especially in today's world. Um, because anybody can create any type of content content they want and they can get it directly into the ears and the eyes of, of people all over the world. And so there's so much possibility. You don't really have gatekeepers anymore uh, like, like you used to have because the radio, uh, it, you know, record labels can't dictate what the world hears. The radio can't dictate what the world hears. The world can hear anything it wants to hear at any time. And anyone can create a sound or a song and give it to the world anytime they want. So it doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter what you look like near as much as it used to. Um, and that's a beautiful thing. Um, I mean, obviously over the years, even years ago, there were people who had to fight, you know, a long battle to become successful, you know, um, you know, there were singer songwriters and very successful artists that didn't have their first hit song until they were 
35, 40, 45 years old sometimes. Um, and so I feel good about where I'm at. And um, like I said, uh, even after eight years, I feel like I am just beginning the journey and that I have the greatest opportunity to be successful. That um, I, I, I have more opportunity to be successful now because of the place I've come to in life uh, than I have so far. So I'm, I'm, I'm very excited. You said at one stage that you tried to sound like Don Henley, John Denver, a bunch of people. Was it a light bulb moment when you went, you're best at sounding like you? Yeah, I wasn't trying to be them as an artist necessarily. It's just that when I was listening to their music and singing along with it, I was trying to imitate what they were doing with their voice. You know, whether it was the vibrato of John Denver or the high notes of Don Henley, I was trying to hit those things and match those things up. So it wasn't necessarily um, an effort at imitation. It was an effort to learn technique uh, in singing. And so um, I think I knew all along that it would be a mistake to try to intentionally sound like someone. But to learn maybe uh, some technique from those voices was for me very valuable. And so, so yes, there were times when I was using vibrato, singing along with John Denver, that I had to really, you know, intentionally use it to go along with what he was doing. There were times when I was singing, you know, um, uh, in a tone that necessarily wasn't me naturally, but I was trying to match you know, Don Henley, even singing along with Adele, she sings some very high notes. And I was trying to even pronounce the words sometimes the way she would pronounce her words, just to get a feel for how even words were being sung and how they, you know, would flow off of the tongue and off of the lips. So I felt like all those tools were valuable. But um, throughout that process, I did come back around and say, hey, I have experienced different vibrations, different techniques, different pronunciations, different volumes, different notes, different tones. I've experienced all those things. Now, how can I take that instrument that I've been using, take those muscles that I've been using as I sing, and just let them be 100% Matt McClure when the sound comes out? And so... Um, I'm at that point now where I am able to just be me when I sing my songs. And so because of that, I feel much more conversational when I sing because I, I really feel like I'm talking to people, not only talking to people through the message I've written, but I'm talking to people with my own voice. And, uh, and so it's made the singing and recording process a lot easier because I'm not trying so hard. And um, is that the secret? Yeah, absolutely. Vocally, yes, absolutely. The, the secret to singing is to get out of your own way. The secret to singing is to not try so hard. A, um, a vocal coach here in Nashville that has given me a lot of wonderful tips, uh, a lot of wonderful advice. Um, he said the same thing. He said, people don't realize how effortless it is to sing. And he uses that word over and over and over again. His job 
is to get people to the point where singing is effortless. And to, to, to understand just how effortless um, singing should be, according to him, a vocal coach, when you think about a baby who can't talk yet, but maybe the baby is hungry and the baby cries out, you think about how natural that sound and how loud and forceful that sound can be. That baby is doing that very naturally, doing it effortlessly. And that sound is resonating and can resonate at a very high vibration and a very high pitch out of off of those vocal cords up through the nasal cavity off of what he calls the nose horn. The, the nose horn can just project that vo voice out and even the front of your skull can vibrate all of that energy and all that sound that comes up just can come out so naturally. And so, and so, yeah, that's the secret. It's, it's to get out of your own way. It's, it's to not try so hard. Um, especially if you are trying to sound like somebody else, you're trying way too hard to sing. Uh, and you're using, you know, you're even tightening up muscles in your body that you're not supposed to be tightening up because you're straining to sound a certain way. And so a vocal coach will, will teach you not how to sing so much as they'll teach you how not to sing. <laughs> really, really, they will. Their job is to strip away all the stuff that you're not supposed to be using. And what's left over is your voice. Vocally, it really is that simple um, to, to get out of your own way and to just really make sure that um, the voice is coming out of you as naturally as a baby would release a sound uh, before it even knows how to talk. Uh, if it would release a cry or a scream or any sort of noise that comes out, uh, that, that, that really is how effortless it, it needs to be. And so a good vocal coach, uh, you know, when you see a performer performing on a stage or a singer on a stage entertaining for hours on end, you know, they're, you know, a vocal coach doesn't necessarily teach you how to sing. They teach you how to use the singing instrument in a way that can um, make it effortless. And, you're, you know, you want to be able to sing for two or three hours straight on stage without straining those muscles. Um, and so if you're trying too hard and you don't know how to use the muscles and the instrument that produces that noise, then, um, you know, you can burn out. You can, uh, you know, just not be able to endure a, a long period of time uh, singing, singing, you know, especially high notes and things like that. If you don't know how to make those notes and those noises come out as, effort, as effortlessly as possible. You say that you've now got your own sound and you're comfortable with that sound. You've obviously got the look as well, the beard. Uh, yeah. Tell us about the beard and how that came about. So, again, it may have – I wouldn't give my childhood all of the credit for my long beard, but <laughs> – and I have long hair too. I've got it tied up right now, but my hair is all the way down my back. And so one of the things that was forbidden, I guess you could say, um, in the bubble that I grew up in was for uh, a man to have long hair. You know, that was supposed to only be women for women. And even a long beard was 
was considered something that was really improper, you know, something that, you know, we shouldn't do. Um, uh, but especially long hair on the head. So I, I guess maybe there was a little bit of rebellion that <laughs> might be involved in growing out the long hair and the long beard. But I'll tell you something that, um, it, you know, everybody that knows me obviously knows that I have this long beard. But they're really the only people that know this are, are my wife and my kids and maybe my mom and dad. One of the biggest inspirations for why I grew out my beard was the Lord of the Rings. Uh, and Gandalf. Gandalf. Absolutely. So I'm a huge Tolkien fan. I love the books. I love the movies. I've always loved wizards. I've always loved and just fascinated by long beards. I've always thought they were so cool. So I knew I could grow a big beard, a long beard. And my plan was to let it grow and just to see how long it got in a year. And then I would grow it for a year and then I would cut it off. So I grew my beard out for a year and it, and it got longer than I thought it would in one year's time. And I, I thought it looked so cool. I thought, okay, I really don't want to cut it off. I'm going to grow it maybe for another year. I'll grow it for two years. And then I'll, I'll have a really, I'll have a really long like wizard beard. I, you know, I'll kind of look like Gandalf. And I just want to see it, you know, and then I'll, I'll go back to normal. I'll cut my hair. I'll, I'll shave my face. And I tell you, it, it just, it turned into just who I am. And so my wife got used to it. My kids didn't want me to shave. They, uh, you know, especially as they've gotten older, they just, they do not want me to ever shave the beard off because I've had the beard now for about 10 years. And, um, so most of their childhood, I've had this beard at, at some length, you know, or, or another. It's gotten longer, obviously. Um, and it's all the way down to my waistline now, about to my belt buckle now. Um, and it got that long in about maybe six or seven years. And it's been this long, you know, since then. So, But in total, I've had the beard for about 10 years. But, yeah, it really uh, – I've always liked long beards. And then when the Lord of the Rings movies came out, and Ian McKellen, you know, obviously played Gandalf. And um, I just I just really just fell in love with uh, the movies and the imagery. I loved Gandalf. And I thought, man, I, I just want one of those. I just want to have a big, long beard, you know, at least once, then I'll shave it off. Uh-huh. And I just haven't shaved it off. And, and so here it is. And, you know, I guess I'll just have it from now on. And... Uh, but yeah, it really started after after you know watching Gandalf in the Lord of the Rings movies. I just thought, man, what a what an image that is. I thought it was just so cool. And knowing that I could grow, <clears throat> I didn't know how long it would get, but knowing I could grow um, a beard, uh, I thought I would give it a try. And so now I do have this image uh, as an artist that you know like you said is is kind of it is definitely a look and it it's it's definitely unique and 
And, uh, you know, I feel good about that um, because, you know, at first glance, especially here in Nashville, people would expect me to sound very, you know, maybe like Chris Stapleton or somebody like that, um, or maybe sound like a Southern rock singer. And, you know, I obviously don't, don't do really either one of those things, traditional country or Southern rock. Um, I love both of those genres. Uh, I love rock and roll. I I love country. Um, But I definitely have a unique look um, that blends, especially with, with this, with this type of music that it's, (laughs) that it's being blended with, that it's being mixed with. And so, you know, hopefully uh, that will play a role in, in maybe, um, you know, the way the music is received, you know, um, as I put the music out into the world, like I said, I've released one song. And as, as I continue to release the music into the world, maybe the image will kind of pair nicely and, and be something of interest to people. Um, you know, after they get interested in the music, maybe maybe they'll they'll be interested in, in the image as well. Obviously, the beard, the long beard, you know, it's, it's very long. It, it is kind of fascinating to a lot of people because you don't see a beard this long in real life very often. So when I run into people on the street, you know, I get a lot of people that, you know, want to talk to me or take a picture with, with me because of my beard being so long. So, um, so yeah, it's just, it's part of who I am now. And I think it's, I think it is going to be a pretty big part of, of the music, you know, the, the image that I, that I have probably will inevitably be, you know, a pretty important part of, of who I am as an artist. You talk about Nosebleed possibly going towards movies and you mentioned with your love of Lord of the Rings. Is that where you see your music sort of heading towards to movies these days? Is that the future you see? I think it's a very um, good opportunity for any artist to to get music placed in film and television. Number one, as an independent artist, um, it's a great opportunity because um, it, it it can be a, a really good source of income. Um, if your if your music gets placed in a movie or a, a big commercial, you know, um, it can provide a good source of income for you. Um, but uh, and I do hope that I can get nosebleed in film and television, and I, I think it would be wonderful if I could get other songs in the future placed in film and television, but. I'm not writing my music with that goal in mind to make it fit film and television. And I didn't write nosebleed with that intention. It just happened to really give off that, that vibe when, when people heard it. As a matter of fact, I didn't think about it being in film and television. Other people did. And so people that I, that I sent it to in Nashville, like I mentioned earlier, the, the producer and songwriter that I sent it to, who did the film and TV edit uh, of the song? They instantly, heard, you know, I didn't. I didn't know they were going to say that to me. They, they, I sent the song to them. They called me ten minutes later and said, "Hey, you can get that song in film and television. It, it's it's perfect for film and television." And then that we ended up we ended up working together to get a more cinematic production of it. And so we have both. And it could be that a music supervisor wants to use the original. Uh, recording of nosebleed in a commercial or something like that 
but if they want a more cinematic production, you know, um, I, I, I've got that on hand as well. But, uh, but no, I don't necessarily see my music as always being geared toward uh, and, and always being something that can accommodate film and television. But um, I, I will gladly put as much of my music in film and television that I possibly can when, when those opportunities arise, because like I said, it, um, if you're an independent artist, it, it can be a great source of income and it can also be a tremendous opportunity for exposure. So, you know, if you're, if your song gets put into a TV show, especially if it gets put as like the, the um, the theme song for a TV show that plays like every time the show comes on, the exposure from that can, you know, really uh, set you up for um, continued success. It can ultimately um, a well-placed song in film or television or commercials or video games can launch a career. Well, you look at the theme song from Friends, everybody knows it. Absolutely. And so there have been instances where, where artists um, were, were basically discovered because of uh, a, a placement of their music, of their song in, in film and television. Well, we look forward to hearing what happens in the next part of your career and continue to write <laughs> and continue to enjoy your music. Matt McClure, how do we find out about your music and if someone wants to check it out how do they do that so the one uh, the first the first song that we released um nosebleed can be found on any streaming service of your choice and so it's on it's on apple music it's on amazon music it's on google play it's on spotify and so if you'll just search matt mcclure nosebleed you're going to find um that song and that particular song the uh, image there for that song is, 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 is my photo. And so you'll see me with, you know, my beard, you'll, you'll know it's me, but um, so, so that song is everywhere on, on all streaming platforms. And um, I've got more songs uh, being mixed as we speak. Um, and so I'm going to continue releasing songs and they all, all of the releases will be on streaming platforms Um any streaming platform that you choose, it'll, it'll be on all of them. And, and so uh, the best place to listen uh, to the music would be, um, like I said, Apple Music or Spotify, Amazon Music. And then um, obviously I'm on, on social media. Your gram account is, is pretty substantial. I have had um, some, some opportunities to um, get my music exposed to, to people on Instagram. On, on what I would call in, in the Instagram in the Instagram world is a, is a pretty small scale. The exposures have been pretty small for me so far. Um, but my biggest opportunity, I think, uh, and everyone's biggest opportunity right now is TikTok. And I just started uploading um, some videos of nosebleed, um, just little 15 second clips of nosebleed onto TikTok. And um, I'm starting to experiment with what types of videos maybe work and, and, and gain attention. And so like uh, a 15 second clip that I uploaded of Nosebleed the other day, it got a few hundred views, which is nothing in, in the TikTok world. 
And then I uploaded a, a, another one and it got like a thousand views. And then yesterday I uploaded um, a 15 second clip of nosebleed and it's over 9,000 views. Wow. So I'm, w- w- which that's a very small number of views compared to the number of views you can, you can get on TikTok. You can get, you know, a billion, but uh, I'm saying that, you know, if you're consistent and you really put your content out there on TikTok, um, you you really do have a chance to get some exposure on TikTok. It's pretty the the, the opportunity for exposure on TikTok is pretty unlimited. And so I'm gonna in the coming days um, that that has been you know like I said I get up at 4:30 every morning and I and I really you know put myself to work and try to do something to 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 get further down the, the road. And one of my focuses, one of the first thing that, that I kind of focus on and brainstorm about in the mornings is how can I uh, be creative on TikTok and do something that's going to um, kind of become trendy and kind of turn into a snowball, you know, and just get more and more views. And, and so that is one of my focuses is, is to... Um, you know, take the music, whether it's Nosebleed or the songs that will be released um, as we go along and to try to use, you know, utilize TikTok um, to get the music into the ears of people. And TikTok also accommodates, you know, my image because you can do videos and people can not only hear you, but they can see you. And so the opportunity is is there. And uh, so I'm, I'm just working on, um, you know, creating everything I can to to, to create those opportunities. Well, we look forward to hearing more from you in the future. Matt McClure, thanks for joining us over the bonnet. Thanks, Mark. I I really appreciate you uh, talking to me, and uh, it's been a pleasure.